Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshallton. Today, I'm interviewing Ken McGugan about his newest book, Searching for Franklin, New Answers to the Great Arctic Mystery, published by Douglas and McIntyre in 2023. Ken McGugan is one of Canada's most well-known Arctic historians and the author of 15 books. His accolades include the Pierre Burton Award for History and the UBC Medal for Canadian Biography. He is also no stranger to witness to yesterday. In 2018, I interviewed him on the history of the search for the Northwest Passage. His book on the impact of the Scottish Highland immigration to Canada was the focus of one of our 2020 podcasts. So Ken, welcome back to Witness to Yesterday. You've set a record by being the only author so far to be interviewed three times. Excellent. Hey, all right. I can can deal with that. To start out with, just give us a brief sketch of John Franklin. Who was he and why was he put in charge of three major expeditions to the Canadian Arctic in the first half of the 19th century? Well, Franklin was born in a town called Spilsby in Lincolnshire in 1786. That's near the coast of England. And his father was a shopkeeper. He was the ninth of 12 children. At age 12, he joined the Merchant Marine, and at 14, he began sailing with the Royal Navy. Nothing unusual in that at that time. The key to Franklin's success in getting appointments was his connection to the famed navigator Matthew Flinders, who married uh, one of his mother's sisters. Franklin sailed with Flinders on a voyage of exploration to Australia, and then with the uh, Napoleonic Wars raging, that was between 1803 and 1815, uh, Franklin ended up on a ship at Trafalgar, Battle of Trafalgar. He acquitted himself honorably, and when the wars ended, uh, he drew on his connections um, that he'd met while sailing with Flinders, notably that of uh, naturalist Robert Brown. Brown recommended him to the scientist Sir Joseph Banks, who in turn relayed him to John Barrow, second secretary of the, of the Admiralty. And Barrow liked men who, whose careers he could control. He appointed Franklin to one Arctic voyage and then to lead the Navy's first overland Arctic expedition. That one led to two more. Well, can you give us just a brief sketch of all three so that we keep them clear in our minds, even though the search for Franklin really focused on the third? Yeah, well, the three began respectively in 1819, 1825, and 1845. They came about when the end of the Napoleonic Wars in 1815 left great hordes of naval officers without employment. John Barrow hit on the idea of renewing efforts to locate the Northwest Passage across the top of North America to find a way to sail from England to the Orient. Barrow put Franklin in charge of the Navy's first overland Arctic expedition. This enterprise was rushed and unplanned. 
Franklin was physically ill-suited and proved unable to take advice from the indigenous peoples. End result, disaster. He lost 11 of 20 men to starvation, cannibalism, and murder. He himself survived thanks only to the actions of two indigenous men. The 1825 expedition managed to do some coastal surveying. Franklin foolishly challenged a couple of hundred hostile Inuit and narrowly survived disaster thanks to the fast-thinking and extraordinary courage of, a, of an Inuit interpreter, Tatnoak. The third expedition, featuring the two ships that sailed in 1845, ended with the loss of all 129 men and so became the worst disaster in polar exploration history. Now, part of the problem was John Franklin, isn't that correct? I mean, you argue not just the fact that he was a plotter or a dope committed to following his Royal Navy orders with little regard to the actual situations he faced in these expeditions, but you also argue that Franklin, who was a devout evangelical Christian, was almost incapable of listening to advice from his indigenous and voyager guides. Can you explain this to us? As you say, Franklin was a, was, was a devout Christian. He believed in miracles. And if you weren't a Christian, well, he wasn't able to learn from you. You know, when in 1821 his first expedition reached the Arctic coast, the veteran Dene leader, Akaicho, begged and pleaded. If you set out eastward now, he said, you'll run out of food and never come back. Franklin went anyway, convinced that he knew better and that the good Lord would provide. Weeks later, when all his men were imploring him to take to turn back, Franklin kept waiting. He kept waiting, expecting a miracle that another Navy officer, Edward Parry, would suddenly arrive by ship from the north. That was part of the original plan. His men were exhausted, running out of food, yet still he waited. If he'd listened to his expert guides, the whole party would have survived. Instead, more than half his men died miserably. Well, tell us why you think this particular book, Ken, is your most ambitious yet. Yeah, well, many people think history, history as a subject area worth studying is in danger of disappearing. And I wouldn't argue with them, especially Canadian history, which has been losing ground to sociology and politics. As a writer, I, I can't revise any curriculum. I don't control grant giving. But I can propose that we write history differently, that we make it more appealing to a broad general audience and reestablish it as an important literary genre. We need to make history exciting again. And how can we do that? Well, with this book and to that end, I take a creative nonfiction approach to writing history. Well, on that point, uh, most of the professional historians that listen to this podcast are very familiar with the tensions between academic and journalistic approaches to history, between, for example, Donald Creighton and Michael Bliss on the one hand and Pierre Burton and Peter Newman on the other. But I think you mean more than that, correct? Well, yes, I do. I guess I'm advocating and modeling an extension to the journalistic approach. It already provides some personal presence, though very little use of the pronoun I, and still less personal experience. It reports almost to objectivity, unfolds in a single point of view, third-person omniscient, and adheres essentially to chronology. 
In Searching for Franklin, I take a creative nonfiction approach. So here we find a more vivid personal presence, one that incorporates personal experience. So the Canadian precursor might be Farley Mowat, minus the fabrications. <laughs> the book also draws on fictional techniques, and so we get scenes and snippets of dialogue. But more than that... The book is not strictly chronological or linear. It intertwines storylines and shifts point of view with some sections narrated in first person. Then we get variations on first person as when the narrator, who does sound a lot like me, directly addresses another figure. Occasionally, too, the narration changes from past to present tense. This happens within a strictly, strictly factual narrative. So the book shuns the predictable. And that, I think, is how, as writers, we can make history exciting again. What was your inspiration or motivation to write what I would call, and perhaps you would call, your big Franklin book? Well, for that, I blame, I blame my friend, the late Louis Kamukak. So in 2017, when I, I called in at Joe Haven with Adventure Canada, we fell to kibitzing, as we, as we often did. And he mentioned that he'd been interviewing uh, Inuit elders. And I said, wait, Louis, when are you going to become an elder? He laughed and shook his head. I, I'm too young, way too young, he said. And then he came back at me. When are you going to write your big Franklin book? My what, I said? Your big Franklin book. You've written about everybody else. When are you going to write Franklin? I took a beat and then I said, oh, I'm too young. I'm, I'm way too young. So that was 2017. And now, six years later, here we are. So what new questions or puzzles were you trying to address in this book? We certainly knew some things for sure before you started researching this book. Tell me, why have there been so many efforts to find out what happened to Franklin and his men? In other words, what new answers did you find to this great Arctic mystery? The great mystery, which has driven countless uh, search expeditions over the past 175 years, is this, in my view. What was the root cause of the ultimate Franklin catastrophe? In, in the 1980s, uh, a classic work, Frozen in Time, pointed to lead poisoning. And that theory prevailed and people debated, well, did it come from tin cans? No. Well, then what about lead pipes? In the early 2000s, in a book called Ice Blink, writer Scott Cookman offered another root cause, also pointing to the tin cans, botulism. More recently, scientists and statisticians have repudiated all these theories, but provided no new answer. So the mystery remains. What keeps it alive? Well, so many questions. Compare the 1829 expedition led by John and James Clark Ross. Those leaders and their men spent four winters in the Arctic. Almost all of them survived. Why did the Franklin expedition begin falling apart after just two years? Why did the Inuit report seeing, seeing sailors sick and dying in a hospital tent? Why, by 1848, did officers comprise 37% of the dead and crewmen only 14%? So, in seeking the answer to all these questions, I, I applied what I'd learned from researching history through five previous Arctic books, and also from personal experience. I remembered the Jens Monk expedition of the early 1600s, and over, over a single winter, 
monk lost 61 of 64 men. Now, in my research, I came across a 1973 article written by one Delbert Young, in which he argued that trichinosis destroyed that expedition. And then I found another example, the Swedish balloon expedition of 1897, led by Solomon Andre. They were going to go to the North Pole. The balloon crashed and all three men survived. But then, soon enough, all three died. In 1952, all those years later, a Swedish doctor studied a bear the man had eaten and found trichinosis. He wrote a whole book about it. So I began to think that together with cold and scurvy, trichinosis had devastated the Franklin expedition. And when I floated this idea among Franklinites, critics pointed out that you see very few polar bears off King William Island where the ships were trapped. And I thought, yeah, that's fair enough. But from personal experience, I knew that polar bears frequented Beachy Island, where Franklin spent that long first winter. Now, bears had driven me off more than once. Because today, if you see a polar bear, you pile into zodiacs and speed away. Yeah, that's not the way Franklin's men could have reacted, right? <laughs> it's very unlikely. Uh, they would have shot those bears dead and stored the meat in caskets, as they did with whatever birds they killed. With that meat, some of it infected, they sailed south. Then, mysteriously, men started to die. Painful, miserable deaths, and panic set in. The men fled the ships. They didn't know what was going on. And so the disaster unfolded. I ran my theory past a, a leading Canadian epidemiologist, David Waltner Taves. He looked it over and said, yes, as a root cause, trichinosis does sound plausible. So there you have it. The searching has gone on since 1848. Today, finally, this book is offering a new answer to a great Arctic mystery that has endured for roughly 175 years. Searching for Franklin argues that the root cause of the catastrophe was not lead poisoning, not botulism, but trichinosis caused by the eating of infected polar bear meat. Now, let me return to the first expedition because you spend over half the book on it. What evidence does Franklin's conduct of this expedition furnish in terms of understanding the unmitigated disaster of the third and final expedition? That first expedition helps, uh, helps us understand the man behind the myth. So that was also part of what I was after. So we know who Franklin is when he sails in 1845. Um, more specifically, it, it informs the, the final expedition when the officers eat bear meat with gusto on that first. And the voyageurs and the Dene, looking at the emaciated bear, refuse to do so. So that tells us how Franklin will respond later, when on Beachy, he encounters polar bears. The story of the first expedition also repudiates the prevailing notion that Franklin should be judged not as an explorer, but as an outstanding navigator. Well, in fact, the man who took all the observations on the first expedition was Robert Hood. So he was the navigator. Franklin simply uh, incorporated Hood's readings into his report without attribution. Well, tell us a little more about two of the key characters assisting in that first Franklin expedition, the Kate Show and Pierre St. Germain. How 
could things have turned out if Franklin had actually listened to both of them? Yeah, Bosakaicho and St. Germain urged Franklin not to continue along the coast so late in the year. Akaicho offered his warning and departed. He said, I'm not going to be any part of this. You guys aren't coming back. And he was <laughs> pretty close to right. St. Germain thought the same thing and he sought to leave. Franklin refused to let him go. Um, it's a good thing he didn't leave because he was the only one who could figure out how to cross a raging river during the desperate return flight. So without St. Germain and the cockle shell he built, everyone would have died right there. In the end, also, a kaicho came through with extraordinary grace and rescued Franklin and the few starving men hanging on with him at Fort Enterprise. Now I'm going to return to the person you talked about earlier, Louis Kamukuk. Why is he so central to this story? Well, among the Inuit, uh, Louis was the outstanding Franklin researcher of the 21st century. He never left off searching for Franklin. He was my friend and my personal connection to this story and to the Arctic. Louis Kamukak inspired me to write this book. So are you done with Franklin now? And what are you working on these days? Well, yes, I, I think I've said my say on Franklin, at least for the foreseeable future. You know, never say never, but <laughs> I have been working on a completely different historical subject, yet still taking a, a creative nonfiction approach, and, and that book should arrive sooner rather than later. More than that, I cannot say. Okay, now you say you're finished with Franklin, but I hear that you're going back to the Arctic in 2024. What's all that about? Yes, I'll be sailing into the Northwest Passage with Adventure Canada next fall. Uh, in fact, if anyone wants to come with me, that travel company will be holding a draw for a voucher worth $5,000 against the cost of the voyage. So to find out details, you can check the blog section of my website at kenmcgugan.com. Great idea. That's great. I'm going to look into that myself. I'd love to go <laughs> along for that ride. But Ken... I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. It's been fun. My guest today was Ken McGugan, once again, for the third time. He is the author of Searching for Franklin, New Answers to the Great Arctic Mystery published by Douglas and McIntyre in 2023. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca. The best way you can support this podcast is by becoming a subscribing member of the Champlain Society. If you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society, as well as the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers. These publishers include the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Greg Marshallden. This interview was recorded on September 26, 2023. This podcast is supported by our producer, Jessica Schmidt, and the University of Toronto Press Journal team. <laughs>